One of the hopes of the daily office is that um, you get so into the story on a Friday that you pick it up on a Saturday to see what happens. Um, that's the hope, anyway. The, the Bible is full of stories. Uh, when you think about the way God wanted to communicate the truth of who God is to human beings who are vastly different in many ways, um, who are limited in, their, in our capacity to understand uh, divine things, God gave us stories. Um, through these stories, we figure out who God is, and we figure out who we are, too. Uh, an old rabbi said that um, the, the reason God created humans was because he loves stories. And that's, that's one of the reasons we were created. And our lives are stories. Um, they start um, chronologically. Uh, there is a timeline to all stories. If you're writing a novel, you must adhere to the timeline. Um, the new show, Loki, uh, that's out right now, and I've, I've been watching some of it, and the whole point of it is that um, Loki has been messing around with the timeline of human history. He's been flitting back and forth and doing all sorts of things that the time lords, those who keep the uh, timeline c clean and bright and moving in one direction, um, he's been messing with that, and so they're coming after him to try to rein him in. Uh, but uh, we do tell stories chronologically in time. We start with our birth, and then we move through uh, the events of our lives that way. When we tell stories other ways, um, we're usually saying something even more profound about our life. That's called a fractured narrative, uh, where events sort of jump around. And there's certain films that do this really well. Um, sometimes you're not always sure where you're jumping to on the timeline in some films. I think the first movie I saw that was like that was Amelie, which is a French film, which they didn't always tell you when they're when it's a dream sequence or when someone's having a vision or someone's remembering something. And I found it very confusing, but very, very profound in that it um, time our memories do not follow a chronological pattern. Our memories sort of pop around all the time to different places and different times. And and even sometimes our imagination of the future um, includes the future in our storytelling. And so the story of Saul begins. Uh, he is a rich kid from a privileged family, and he's been sent on an errand to find these donkeys. An incredible amount of detail goes into his journey with these donkeys or trying to find them. And as far as I know, I don't think he ever finds the donkeys. We'll have to check in tomorrow. Uh, but he does not find the donkeys. Um, his first task in the story of how he becomes king is an unsuccessful one. Um, certainly there's foreshadowing in that, that in his task as a king, he is unsuccessful um, as a king by the standards of God and by the standards of the people that he leads. And yet um, there's something about Saul that's, that is a compelling character too. He is a morally complicated person. Um, in some ways, uh, some people have pointed out he's a morally injured person um, from his battle and uh, captive taking with the Amalekites. But he is a person. He is a person that God has a relationship with. He's a person that God is working through on some level. 
uh, to do what God wants to do in the world. And even though he is flawed and his kingship is flawed and, and is unsuccessful and eventually ends with his death, um, that's when his kingship ends, uh, he is a person that we must learn from, must consider, must contemplate. And the way we do that is through the storytelling. Um, the narrator of Samuel sometimes tells us when somebody is misbehaving. Uh, sometimes, like the sons of Eli, like the sons of Samuel, um, but not always. Sometimes it just tells us, he just tells us what happened, who did what, who said what. And there they are. Um, we get a little glimpse into what life was like for people at this time. Here they are out far away from home looking for these donkeys. And they just happen to come by this town where I think it's the boy, or Saul says to the boy, I think there's a seer in this town. The word seer is a, a sort of a literal translation of the Hebrew uh, word for someone who can see the future. The word seer is, is sort of like a literalist uh, word in English, like the seer, the one who sees, um, someone who can see into the future, which, you know, when you're Saul, to be able to see into the future is kind of a good thing or maybe a useful thing. Uh, he knows he's destined for some kind of greatness, it seems like. He's someone who understands his privilege uh, and understands his position in society. Um, he, I don't think he has any idea what's about to happen. But this is part of his journey. Uh, later, we'll encounter Saul prophesying. We'll, we'll encounter Saul becoming a prophet in his own right um, in a very strange uh, set of circumstances. But here he goes to consult the seer, which tells me that a lot of people probably did this. Um, when you were in a near a village that had a seer, uh, you would go and talk to him. I mean, this sounds a lot like fortune telling or something, or maybe from the, the Viking series to go see the seer in that story. Um, you know, you go and, and learn what your future is and they tell you what it is. Uh, this is something humans have always wanted to know, something I've always wanted to know. But we must ask ourselves the question, if you knew the future, if you could tell what the future was, would you, would you want to know it? If you could look into the book of ages and see everything that was going to happen to you, uh, would you look? And Saul is the kind of guy who wants to look. Um, and we have this other linguistic thing happening here in the story. Um, in verse 9, the narrator tells us, the narrator's writing, considerably later than this time period, maybe. Um, and he's writing and says, anyone who went to inquire of God in that time in Israel, back in the old days, they would say, come, let us go to the seer. For the one who is now called a prophet was formerly called a seer. So the term that's used during Samuel's day is prophet, navim, navim, uh, or navi. And the older word is seer. So you can even see like a progression of the way people understood their faith happening right here in the text, that um, this person that is a seer, which might be tied to more ancient and older uh, practices that maybe was maybe the pagan groups around Israel practiced, or maybe this came from the days of Abraham. Maybe it came from Ur of the Chaldees. Who knows? This tradition of having these, these seers has morphed into this kind of prophetic work 
where the, the prophets are not always just seeing the future, but they're proclaiming publicly what God wants God's people to do. The prophets historically both were forth tellers. They told forth what God was telling them, and they were foretellers. Like they were able to say, this is going to happen in a certain number of years, or this will happen in your lifetime, or this will happen in many lifetimes, maybe many generations later. And so this dual role of the prophets is sort of solidified right here in the story, that the prophets were people that both proclaim the word of God publicly, not just privately like these seers do. The seers seems like are, you know, you just go to them to their little house and maybe give them some money or food or something, and they tell you what's going to happen to you. But the prophetic role that is going to be the new role in the land of Israel, it's going to be the, the role where, that, that opposes the kingship in many ways or works with the kingship. You can remember that story of Nathan the prophet who comes to King David after he's murdered Uriah, one of his soldiers, and is, has taken his, his wife as his own um, after sleeping with her and, and um, compelling and forcing her to do so. Um, and then he kills Uriah, and Nathan the prophet comes to him and confronts him publicly. Um, this is the role of the prophets, to be that uh, force for good in the kingdom. Now, we also know that there's a million false prophets. They're mentioned over and over and over again in all these stories. So this sort of cottage industry of prophet, prophecy um, has its problems to it. But so do the kings. They have their problems too. Um, as you can see from the stories about kings, most of them are wicked. Most of them do terrible things. Only a few uh, follow God the way God wants the kings to follow. And so this is the story of the kingship of Israel. It is the story eventually of how David becomes king and how Solomon becomes king and Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And I think my list of memorized king's names stops there, all the way down to uh, Jehoiakim, who's the last king. But this is the kingly line that is picked up in Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke both have genealogies that trace Jesus back to these kings, to the King David. That's where they trace his lineage to. And it's right here in the story, that, that lineage of kingship that Jesus embodies. So Christians today are monarchists. We do have a king. That is Jesus. He is our king. And so all the worldly and earthly governments of this world have a role to play, and we participate with them in their role as, as go in governing, especially in a democracy where we have a little bit more voice and a little bit more say than people that lived under monarchies in the past. But we still acknowledge that we have one king, and that king is Jesus. And that means we follow him. We obey him. He is our Lord. That's really what Lord means, is king, um, someone who has that kind of authority over us. And so the kingship of Saul is the, the way this metaphor gets started, but ultimately is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ, who loves us dearly. The, the throne of Jesus is a wooden cross, a wooden Roman cross that is set on a hillside for all to see, and he is publicly shamed on that cross. He is tortured on that cross. He is mocked on that cross, on that throne. That is your king. Above his head is written, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. It's written in Hebrew. It's written in Aramaic. It's written in Greek. So everybody in the whole world 
can know that he is a terrible loser, that he is not a real king. And yet Christians, from the very early moments of our faith, we knew that he is our king, the kind of king that rules from a cross, the kind of king that stretches out his arms on the hardwood of the cross so that everyone can come within the reach of his saving embrace, so that our strength is made perfect in our weakness. We follow him in that cruciform pattern of saying it is in giving that we receive. It is in giving up our power, our privilege, all of our all of our um, creature comforts. It is in giving up those things that we follow Jesus most closely. And it's voluntary. It's not something we force each other to do or force anyone to do. It's something that we do and embrace because he is our king and we follow our king into the battle of life. Kings were ultimately military leaders. This is why the Israelites wanted a king. They didn't want a king to, to run the sewer system. They didn't want a king to run the grain harvest. They wanted a king to lead them in battle. And so King Jesus does that for us, not with, not with literal weapons, but with love. He leads us in the battle of love. And it is a battle. There are many forces that oppose the love of Jesus in this world. There are many forces that seek to destroy the creatures of God. And through love, we follow our king, who is always going to places where people are suffering, always going to places where people have been thrown out, kicked out, have suffered abuse. This is where you'll find King Jesus. You'll find him on his throne on the cross, and you'll find him where people are suffering. Amen.